0: Uh, kind of classic Christmas story, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 2, the first uh, 12 verses, and uh, this is uh, God's word to us, our king. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word that uh, your revelation of who you are comes to us in stories, stories of actions, things that you have done in history. And here uh, we read of these wise men who came uh, to the child Jesus and they worshiped before him. And uh, Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and open this text to us, that it uh, it would uh, teach us, teach us to be worshipers. Uh, teach us what it is to follow Christ, to trust in Christ. And uh, so we ask that you would be our teacher, and um, I pray that uh, you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that you would raise the dead, that you would give us a life by your word. And we ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. So uh, this morning we are uh, looking at this uh, classic text. and. uh, one of the things you'll notice that in this passage that we just read, that the, the passage kind of begins, and actually in the middle, three times, it talks about worship. And uh, if you pick up there in verse 2, when the wise men uh, come, uh, they say, uh, they come uh, to, to Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star uh, when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And then at the end of the passage, and going uh, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down. And they worshipped him. Uh, this is a passage about uh, people coming to worship Jesus, the child Jesus. And uh, which, by the way, uh, if you were with us last week, uh, we've already seen that Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is God become a man. And uh, if anyone ever thought, you know, did the New Testament ever really... Teach that Jesus is God. I mean, that he's not just a good guy, a good teacher, that he's God. Here again, this is the third time already in, Ma- in the New Testament in Matthew, Matthew, are in the second chapter already, again, Matthew was saying uh, Jesus was worshipped. And this is language that in, in Matthew's culture would have only been applied to what you do to God. You'd be prostrate on the ground, worshipping God. This is only something you do to God, and they're giving it to the child Jesus. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, um, when I uh, became a Christian... Uh, worship was kind of a a strange thing for me before I became a Christian. Um, The whole idea of, you know, falling down, uh, getting together, the the whole emotional act, worship seemed like a very uh, kind of irrational thing that Christians came together and they were kind of surrendering their life. And uh, I I don't know if that's your feeling about that, but um, many people in our culture, the whole idea of worship, that I would uh, surrender my life, that um, I would come and I would stir up my emotions, my love, my adoration, and then, you know, uh, a lot of times people would see, and I get my emotions stirred up and then I give my money away. You know, here are the, here the uh, wise men bringing these really valuable treasures and laying them at the feet of Jesus. And uh, it seemed the opposite of everything that our culture values. Because there's one thing that our culture values is what is Be yourself. You need to f- express yourself, find who you are. Um, and, and uh, self-expression, self-actualization, self-realization. Find out who you are and express that. Don't give your life to anyone. Don't let anyone have power over your life. You've got to find out what your life is about and you've got to do it. And so to worship, to bow down, to surrender not only seems foolish, but maybe even feel, seems wrong. That uh, I would give myself to worship a God. And yet, I, I think even then, If I'd read this passage, there is uh, something uh, enchanting, something intriguing about these wise men. They're clearly very bright. Uh, They're probably dignitaries from uh, a foreign land. You know, we usually sing, "We three kings of Orient are." They're probably not kings, but they're probably a representative of kings from a foreign land. So they're very wealthy. They have a lot of power. They're very bright. And yet, they come to Jerusalem, and they're not interested in the religious leaders. They're not interested in Herod, who's got all kinds of power. They're interested in this baby Jesus. And they want to fall down, and they want to worship him. What's happening with them? And um, and let me just say uh, that, that that might be you this morning. You might be, think that worship is a strange thing to worship God, to surrender my life to God, bow down before him. And yet you might, maybe you know Christians, or maybe you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. You know other Christians, and you see that there's something very attractive about someone who lives their life in worship to God. They seem to have meaning. They seem to have purpose. They seem to be at ease um, with the story of their life. And so there's, there's something that's that's strange about worship, but also something that's attractive. And so um, here, um, oh, let me just say this. Why is that? Why is worship something that's attractive? Why are you reading about these wise men? Why is there something intriguing about them? The reason is because all of us were made to worship. Uh, The Bible tells us that the the thing that makes us human, the thing that makes us different from the animals, is that we are the animals that worship. We're the animals that worship God. And what that means then, if you were made to worship, if you don't worship the baby Jesus or worship God, you're going to find something else to worship, whether it's your... Your spouse, whether it's your children, whether it's your job, whether it's uh, a hobby, whether it's watching football and keeping stats, whether it's recreation, you are going to find something that you are going to put at the center of your life that ultimately gives you meaning, that, you, that controls your emotions, that you give your hope to, that you invest all your money in, that you, you're going to have a master. You will have a master. And uh, the question is, um, who, who is your master? Who do you bow down before? Who has control of your emotions? Because something does. And uh, the invitation of um, these, this passage is that we see these wise men, who are very bright, very wealthy, found that the only thing that was worth their devotion and their adoration was this baby Jesus. How did that happen? Why did that happen to them? Well, um, what we're looking at, uh, what they're doing in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is actually the same thing that we're doing this morning this is a worship service we are bowing down and we're worshiping worshiping Jesus as well and what I want to do is I want to look at four aspects of this passage things that I I think when I think of worship and if you're a Christian aren't the the first things that I think of when I think of having talking about worship but that are in this passage and um, and to see what was it about worship that drew these these uh, wise men to Jesus why were they drawn why were they attracted to Jesus And these are the four things that we're going to look at. That worship is contextual. I'll explain what that means. Contextual, what does that mean? Worship is contextual. Worship is political. Worship is the essence of true joy. And fourth, worship is all about Jesus. These four things, worship is contextual, political, the essence of true joy, And all about Jesus, and of course, I'm not going to say everything there is to say about worship, but these are the things that I think are striking in this passage. So, the first we're going to look at is that worship is uh, contextual. What do I mean by that? That worship is contextual. What what I mean is that um, when we worship God, we God communicates us. God draws us to worship through our culture, the culture that we live in, through our context. Whatever context we're in, he uses that context, he uses that culture as a means to draw us to himself. And in this case, you know, you have these, men, these wise men who, they follow a star, right? They see this star, in the you know, and they are going to follow, and they say that they've been studying the stars. And um, the reason for that is because these wise men, they're astrologers. And so they, uh, they've been studying the sky and... Um, that their whole life is to, is devoted to studying the skies, and actually, um, you know, some of you might wonder, what is this star? It talks about that showed up in the east. We don't really know, um, but there are a few things that's interesting. In the uh, there's an old Chinese document that says in the year that Jesus was born, there was either a nova or a supernova that. Uh, Appeared in the sky was very radiant and bright, and for 70, uh, seventy days, which unusually long for a supernova to be shining in the sky. There's other, uh, other. Um, there's a conjunction of, of uh, Saturn and Jupiter that happened around the time of Jesus. So maybe they've been watching the stars and they see something abnormal that's happened, and they say, "There's an event that's happening in, in the world," and um, and because they believed that the stars were sending them messages about what's. You know, there's some connection between what happens in the stars and what happens on Earth, and and so the the word for uh, uh, wise men there is the word magos, which is uh, or magi, the where we get the word magic or magician. So these are magicians. They're superstitious. They're studying the stars. They think the stars tell them about the world, and um, the point of that, what's fascinating about that, is that this superstition of studying the stars is something that the Bible explicitly says you should not do. Do not study the stars. Do not worship the stars. Do not look to them for for messages. And yet God communicates to these wise men through the stars, through their culture. He meets them where they are. He doesn't say, no, I refuse to communicate with you through stars. He communicates through them in the way that they understand, in a language that they understand. The language that they understand are the stars. He uses their context. And let me just say a couple things about that. First of all, Christians as they have worshipped throughout history, have always contextualized their worship. It has always uh, somehow had a connection to their culture. And this is one of the interesting things. You look through the history of, of the Christian church that um, every other religion has been deeply tied to its culture and its context. So, you know, you look at Hinduism. The, the center of mass of Hinduism has never been outside of India. Or Buddhism, outside of China. Or Islam, has the center, the culture... The the religion has been tied to the Middle East and to its cultural center. It's never been able to move from there because it's so deeply tied to its culture. Christianity and the gospel has always been different. Christianity started in Palestine, and then it moved, uh, moved up into uh, modern-day Turkey, the center of Mass, uh, into Antioch in the Book of Acts, and then in the next centuries it moved into North Africa, and then it moved uh, up into Italy and into Europe, and then the British Isles became the center of Christianity, and then uh, the U.S. became, uh, and, and the Americas became the center of Christianity. In our day, the, cent- the cultural center of Christianity is no longer in the West or in Europe. It's in uh, Africa and the majority world, South Africa and, uh, and in Asia. The gospel, Christian worship, has not been tied to a culture. Somehow it's been able to move into different cultures and all different kinds of ethnic groups, all different kinds of people have been able to come together and worship in the context of their own culture. And so what that means, you know, we're a Presbyterian church, and if you go to Presbyterian church in Alabama, it's going to look very different than what we're doing here. If you go to Presbyterian church in Uganda, there's a lot of Presbyterians in Uganda now. (laughs) It's going to look very different. Because worship is able, uh, is contextualized, and God communicates to us in the context of our culture. So the, the, the context of this church should feel somewhat like Bellingham. That this is a Bellingham church. You know, we're kind of laid back. There's, not, I don't, there's any, you know, not a lot of suits here and, you know, a lot of REI fleeces and things like that. We're worshiping within our context. And that's a big, by the way, for our church, that's an important part of our mission in Bellingham is that we understand our culture. You know, one of my favorite proverbs is, uh, he who gives an answer, before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If we don't listen to the culture around us and understand our community and how we worship here, we're not going to be able to give the answer of the gospel uh, that our culture needs. So on the, first of all, Christians have always contextualized. But on the other hand, I think this passage also says that we can't over-contextualize. Because... Um, the Bible also has, has a lot to say about worship. It doesn't just say worship God however you want and just, you know, you don't, just be like Bellingham and worship God. It tells us how to do it. <laughs> As we also have to listen to the Bible, one of the things that's interesting here is that, uh, you know, the wise men, they're following the star. So God's meeting them where they are. Okay, you, you understand things through stars. I'll talk to you through the star. But you know what? The star doesn't lead them to Jesus. Do you notice that? The star leads them to Jerusalem. And then they go to Jerusalem, and they say, where where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And then you see that in verse verse 5. You know, Herod gets the chief priests and the scribes together, and he says, uh, uh, Then they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He uses, they need the scriptures. God says the star's not going to lead you to Jesus, the Bible's going to lead you to Jesus. And so the, this, there's a double action happening here. So when we're worshiping God in Bellingham, it should feel like Bellingham, and yet it should also be informed and led by the word of God. We're not just doing whatever we want as Bellingham people worshiping God. So it's a mixture of our context with, uh, with the scriptures coming together. And let me just tell you, this is this is very different than as our Christians tend to have two tendencies. On the one hand, there's a kind of the conservative uh, tendency among Christians and among worship, and they say, you know, Bellingham. I, I don't know if you saw this in uh, the day before Thanksgiving. There was a, an article in the paper about the most unchurched cities in the state of Washington. Uh, Washington is the most is the second most un. Church state in the country, and it turns out Bellingham is the second most unchurched city in the state of Washington. Seventy-two percent of the people in, in Bellingham have no religious affiliation. So uh, we're in a very unchurched, you know, part of the, part of the country, part of the world, and uh, and you know, a conservative person will say, "Well, listen, you know, how are we going to ha- let Bellingham influence our worship? I mean, they're just a bunch of pagans, right? Let's—they uh, can't, uh, you know—they need to repent and believe in God." And, but, you know, and so that's kind of the conservative response, is to say, we just need to stick to the Bible. But then the liberal response says, you're, you know, you're just sticking to the Bible, you're too dogmatic. And those people in Bellingham, they're not going to come in and worship God if you're being so dogmatic and holding on to the Bible and believing everything about the Bible. You're not letting them come as they are. You're not meeting them on their own terms and meeting them where they are. They're never going to come to you. And so the liberal response doesn't have any challenge from the Bible. And what true... Worship of God, it brings together the context we're living in with the Word of God, the challenge of the Word of God, and we're doing a simultaneous action where we're both identifying with the people around us and we're challenging the people around us and calling them to repent. We're doing both. And so, uh, worship is something that transcends the conservative-liberal divide that our culture is facing right now. Worship transcends it. And that actually leads to the second... Thing that we see in this passage is that not only is worship contextual but worship is political worship is political now what do i mean by that and i think if if i was sitting in your shoes what that says to me when a, a pastor says worship is political is i immediately think of republicans and democrats and a church is you know kind of Pushing candidates or or a, a political agenda, and uh, they're saying, you know, we got to transform the culture, and the way to do it is through the political process, and we got to um, we got to vote for this this candidate. That's actually the opposite of what I'm saying when I say that worship is political, because um, um, the wise men in this passage they come and they say uh, that they want to worship Jesus, right? And this is what it says in verse 3. Look at this. When Herod the king, there's this repetition of the word king in here. It's making us think politics, kings, people in power, people in political power. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be uh where, Christ was to be born. So apparently uh, Herod is upset about this word that, you know, the Christ has been born and you might wonder if there you know the old song we three kings Warrior are you know if it's just three guys coming out of the desert looking for a baby, you know what's the big deal? That's probably not what it was. It was probably more than three king, three wise men. It was probably a whole crew of wise men that had all kinds of servants and soldiers and camels and they had a whole entourage with them and they're showing up in Jerusalem and Herod's saying, "Who are all these who are all these people?" And they, why do they care about this baby that's born? And they said, there's a whole mass of dozens and dozens of people with other camels and their wealth and their gold and their frankincense and myrrh, and they're saying, we want to worship Jesus. And Herod says, Whoa, there's another king born in my territory? He saw it as an alternate king, a political threat, was the worship of Jesus. And, um,. And actually, uh, what's interesting is you look in the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, in the end of 1 Corinthians, which is kind of the section, the biggest section in the New Testament about Christian worship, what, uh, what Paul says is the mark of a church that is filled with God's spirit, that is worshiping in God's spirit, is a church that says that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is curious. Curios is the word for Lord, is a word for Caesar. Jesus, you know, we don't worship Caesar, we don't follow Caesar, we, we worship and we follow an alternate king. There's another king that we serve. And so that worship is a, a, a political statement, and, and Christian worship throughout history has always been that way. You know, even now, house churches in China... That um, are are underground. They're they're uh, worshiping against the political forces that say they're not allowed to do it. In a place like Indonesia, both these places, Indonesia is one of the most m- Muslim uh, nations in the world, and uh, in 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 the past decades, highly persecuted Christians, and Christians are worshiping, and and the gospel is going forth and and uh, growing like crazy in these areas, and doing what we're doing here. This. A bunch of people getting together and saying we believe that Jesus is the true king is actually a political statement to the world of who we believe the true king is. And um, I'll tell you what that, um, that causes us to do. I think it gives us a sobriety about even our own, our own nation, our own country. Because what it tells us to do on the one hand is say, you know, we're Americans and we thank God. That we get to live in this country, This many things about our country have been shaped by the Bible and by Christians, and, and uh, it's a tremendous blessing. We, have, uh, we get to worship in freedom, and we love uh, that we live here. But on the other hand, we don't believe that America is the savior of the world. We don't believe that America is the hope of the world. Jesus is the Lord and king of the world. And every time we come here on Sunday morning and we worship, we're actually saying that. And that actually, you look at the nation that Jesus is building— I mean, there's somewhere between a billion and two and a half billion Christians in the world. So Jesus' nation that he is gathering from all ethnic groups in every, every part of the world is, you know, somewhere between three and seven times the size of the United States. This is a massive nation of people. And, and, uh, and he is transforming cultures in every, in every square, you know, square corner of the earth, he is transforming cultures through doing what we're doing right here, through worship, through coming and saying, we give our allegiance to Jesus. And, um, and so um, the reason I emphasize that is because generally when we think of worship, we generally think of worship has to do with my personal spiritual life and uh, getting spiritual fulfillment and I'm an encounter God and it absolutely is that. But it's something far more. We are a part of Jesus' worldwide project of the bringing of his kingdom. And we're together worshiping this morning with billions of people in every corner of the world. But to say that worship is about more than our spiritual fulfillment is not to say that it's less than our spiritual fulfillment. It has this political element. It's contextual. It's political. But also, we see amazingly in this passage that it does have to do with our hearts and our own personal lives. And this is the third thing that we see in this passage, is that worship is the essence of true joy. When we worship God through Christ, we are experiencing what deep, true joy is. And uh, you see this here, verse 9, look at, look again. After listening to the king, the wise men, they went on their way, and behold the star that they had seen when it arose before before them until... it. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the star that they had seen when it rose when it uh, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and worshipped him. The experience of worship was a supreme moment of delight and joy and wonder for them, and uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, wrote late in his life he wrote a book called the reflections on the psalms and he has this little chapter in that book called a word on praising and uh in that lewis is kind of wrestling with the fact he says you know what's the deal with god wanting demanding all these people to come and bow down and worship him and tell him how great he is constantly singing you're worthy of all power and wisdom you're the greatest why does god need that you know If you know a person who's doing that, right? if you know someone who's always needing someone to tell them how great they are, you'd say, well, you probably are insecure, you have low self-esteem. Why do you need everyone to kind of massage your ego all the time? And so there's this question uh, of—Lewis was like, what's the big deal with praising and worship? Why does God need all that? And as he was reflecting on it, he began to think about praising and what we do in worship when we come and we worship and we adore God. And he says, where does that, where else does that happen in our life? And I I put a little quote for you on page three of your bulletin, and this is what he says. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, Uh, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. What Lewis is saying is one of the things that he observed is the sound of being happy, the sound of joy, is praise. When you praise people and you say, oh, this food is so good, or you, you tell your wife, you, you are so beautiful. And I, that's, that is part of the enjoyment of something is to praise it. And so for God to say he wants us to praise him is for God to say he wants to, us to enjoy him. And this is what, this is what Lewis uh, goes on to say, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, supremely valuable is God, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. Um, If we praise earthly things and we get pleasure out of that, how much more the supremely pleasurable, the beautiful thing, God, will we get pleasure out of praising him? And the reason God wants us to praise him is because he wants us to know deep inner joy. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, this is one thought that I've had is, you know, even as a dad, that I think is somewhat related to this, that, you know, is it appropriate for me as a dad to want uh, my children to say I'm the best dad in the world? Is that something, you know, is that a pure thing? Is that, you know, well, maybe I'm insecure and I need them to, you know, reassure me and so that I, And that's helpful. But I think there's an element of that being a pure thing for me to want my children to say I'm the greatest dad in the world. Why? Because if my children say I'm the greatest dad in the world, what does that mean? It means all the love I have for them, all the delight I have in them, how much I cherish them has gotten through to them. It has gotten through who, how much I care them has hit them. And if it has hit them, then they're going to respond by saying you're the greatest down in the world. And that's how I know is, is, is by, by their response. And God is the same way. That he knows that his love has gotten through to us. Who he is, his care, his salvation, his cherishing of us has hit our hearts. He knows that when it, we've responded with praise. And that praise is actually the experience of enjoying God's love for us. And so um, this delight is what drove, was attracting these wise men. And uh, that's uh, the last thing that I want to say about worship. It's not just that worship is contextual, political, and the essence of true joy. But finally, worship is all about Jesus. And, uh, you know, throughout this, this passage, there's been this emphasis on the child. You know, the wise men came down to bow down to give gifts to the child. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that, you know, the child. there's nothing remarkable about the child. I mean, the child was born, Mary was a virgin, but besides that, there was nothing remarkable in this passage about the child. You know, if you read the Quran, for example, it says that Jesus, when he was a baby, started talking and telling people that he was showing them the right way. And there were other gospels that were written later on that say that Jesus did miracles when he was a baby. There's nothing like that in this passage. He's just a baby. He's crying, he's giggling, he's, you know, breastfeeding And that's the one that, the the thing that's remarkable about this passage is who is coming to him. Who is Jesus welcoming? And uh, because one of the things that we see in this passage is that the the religious people, the people who know the Bible really well, they've been studying the Bible, they know what verse, Micah 5.2, they know in Micah 5.2 it says where the Messiah is coming they know Micah 5 too, but they didn't actually go to Bethlehem to go see Jesus. They don't care about actually seeing him. They know the Bible. They're the ones who should have been there, the religious people. And Herod, the one in power, he's uh, in, in is kind of a pseudo-Jew, who loves God. He doesn't want to go see Jesus. It's these wise men who are superstitious who don't know their Bibles, they don't know anything about the Bible, they don't know, you know, where, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? We don't know what, about the book of Micah, I can't find that in the Bible. You know, they, you know they're kind of like tarot readers, they got a little hut, you know, where they bring people in and they read the stars and they tell you their fortune. they're, they're kind of quirky people that, you know, look to the stars for messages. There's, they, everything is wrong about them. They are not the right people who should be worshiping Jesus. And yet, the thing about them is that they were hungry. They wanted that supreme joy. And because they were hungry, Jesus welcomed them, and they came. And even as a baby, Jesus is doing what he would do the rest of his life, and what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years is inviting the hungry. You don't have to have it right. Your life doesn't have to be put together in an order to come and worship. And Jesus bid them and invited them to come. What happens is when we come here and we worship and we're bowing down and we're giving our gifts and we're praising, we're telling God how great he is, we think we're giving everything to God, it turns out that he teaches us, he feeds us, he loves us, he washes us, he turns around and serves us. That's who we're worshiping. So the question is, uh, what are you worshiping in your life? What is the center of your life? What is your master? Does it give you the essence of true joy? Does it give you the joy that we see in these wise men? God is calling all people to come and worship this baby and in him you'll find grace and you'll find love and you'll find joy. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that Jesus doesn't require us uh, to have our lives together or to have uh, to know, the Bible inside and out, and to be religious people to come and worship. We pray that you would give us hearts that would come and delight in this child and uh, lift our hearts to worship, and we ask this in his name.